Welcome to Designers of Paradise, a podcast focused on people who are changing the ways in which we produce our food, care for our soil and water, and protect our climate. There's a steady flow of information now about the many ways in which agriculture is damaging our planet, disrupting natural ecosystems, polluting our air and water, and destroying the soil it depends on. But there's another set of stories to be told as well. These are the stories of the people dedicating their time and brilliance to reversing the impacts of our industrial food systems. From farmers and consumers to innovators and entrepreneurs, city planners and funders, an entire ecosystem of change makers is on the rise. Together, they're bringing in a next generation of agriculture, which is regenerating soils, food quality, local economies, and significantly, hope. Hope for a better, healthier, and more equitable future for all. These are the designers of paradise. These are people who see paradise as the natural condition of a world in balance, where our collective activity feeds the land and consciously works with nature to rebuild the abundance that supports all life, including our own. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. Please subscribe for Designers of Paradise at iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. My guest today is Josh Tosteson uh, in Brooklyn, New York. And um, we're going to be, this will be be our fourth or fifth conversation we've we've had uh, in this format, but the first one recorded. It's been a really, really enjoyable journey uh, finding out more about uh, issues that we share and, and different kinds of worldviews we, we both touch on. We're going to look today uh, particularly into the whole concept of scaling, why we need to scale, how we can scale, um, other concepts around that. Josh has been working on, on a number of things related to this over the past. I'm going to let him explain that further. But uh, he comes from a very deep permacultural background and has also done quite a lot of work around uh, strategic support and support for strategy uh, for the Rainforest Alliance in terms of their field operations worldwide. So Josh, welcome. And um, I see your terrace is still looking lovely here in late September. Good day, Eric. It's fun to be rapping with you this time, all recorded for eternity to weigh in on. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's great to see you. Cool. Uh, give us give us an idea of, of um, kind of how you came through permaculture to what you're doing now. Sure. Uh, boy, I was at the time. This was in the late 1990s, and I was a graduate student, uh, one of the first graduate students at the Columbia Earth Institute, which was this amazing um, program that's now really flourishing at Columbia that was originally started by Mike Crow, who is the visionary president of Arizona State University. The whole idea was to transform the practices of research and teaching and so forth at the university to the interdisciplinary character that reflects the earth system and all the issues and challenges we face around um, living well within the earth system. So I was spending some time doing atmospheric science and public policy and um, some amazing work was getting done there. And I was focused in my work on um, how to make use of climate forecasts, short to medium climate forecasts of El Nino to do advanced planning for agriculture, for civil planning, and so forth. And I saw and was involved with this work with huge resources being dedicated to improving the climate forecasts. And as I started to look into it, I realized that, of course, places like Peru, which have been traditionally exposed to El Nino for time out of mind, nothing's different there. What's different now is that the infrastructure, the agriculture practices, et cetera, are not tuned to the natural patterns of variability to which they've always been exposed. And I kind of had an aha moment that, well, wait a second, our leverage point could be investing all kinds of money in getting a better climate forecast so we could plan even more in advance 
but wouldn't the resources be better deployed in actually putting sustainable systems on the ground? And what does that mean? So I had this kind of existential crisis about academia at the time. And I said, I just, this is, I've got to go on walkabout. I've got to leave. And, and um, Mike Crow, who was my advisor at the time, um, provided me with one of the generous gifts of my life and, and gave me funding. And he said, no strings, just go figure out what you want to do. I spent a good amount of the of that year, ensuing year, living on Tagari Farm in Australia. Tagari Farm is the original farm developed by Bill Mollison, who is one of the co-originators of the permaculture concept. Um, and so I saw with my own eyes and worked with my own hands in what truly are next level legitimate sustainable agriculture systems, which are just ones that are patterned on the functioning of natural ecosystems. So taking kind of the design blueprint out of mother nature and applying it to created systems that can meet our own needs. And that changed my life. So that's a bit of a long winded answer to your question, but that's how I kind of got into permaculture. I was going to say that's in a nutshell, but it's kind of like a coconut shell or, you know, maybe a Brazil nutshell. Not something large. <laughs> yeah, something large. And was that before or after your involvement with Rainforest Alliance? Way before. That was really like while I was still in academia and, you know, that really was what began my professional career. So I, I left school at that point and went on a long winding journey of service to people and planet. Um, and my service at Rainforest Alliance actually came from, gosh, 2011 to 2016 or so. It was about five or six years of time. And if, for those who don't know Rainforest Alliance, you know, it's a large um, international non-governmental organization that um, uses the power of markets and global supply chains to try to get um, better agricultural and forest management practices um, spread at scale on the landscape. So what that means in sort of practice is that they work with large companies like say Mars or Unilever um, to support them as they make commitments. And you know, when Rainforest Alliance started out, this was really very new. Now it's happening all over the place. But the idea that a company like Mars could say, by date X, we're going to have our entire cocoa supply chain be 100% sustainable. That was like very radical at the time. No one even knew what that meant, what that could mean and how that could happen. And so Rainforest Alliance is really at the center of the action and figuring out, okay, well, now that you've got this ball in your hand, right? For those of us who've been in this game for a while, this is the ultimate, like you got the ball, you're on the field. We wanna take all of our cocoa and make it sustainable all of our tea, all of our coffee, what have you. Now comes the practical work of mapping out supply chains, developing best practice standards, doing the training and the technical assistance and figuring out how to do all of that on some reasonable budget and with reasonable effectiveness over a really aggressive time frame. So that was the kind of stuff that we were involved in and that that organization continues to be involved in. And so my role there was basically being responsible for the global field operations and for our strategy um, for a few years. So did you do that um, basically on the move? Or I mean, were you, were you in the field a lot during that time or were you mostly doing that from sort of a more centralized con uh, situation where you had more oversight over the larger pattern? Um, mindful that we're also talking about scale today and it seems that um, you know, that's a whole interesting aspect of how you get to scale. So it's so that's a great question. And, you know, it's so hard because the, the, so the answer, the direct answer is I spent more time in HQ than I did in the field. And the time that I spent in the field, which was a lot, was mostly spent in the offices of the organization with our staff. And I think, you know, if I, if I look back on the time there and anything of a regret, it was that I did not spend more direct time really out in the work. Um, I did, of course, spend plenty of it. Um, you get touched by the, it sounds hokey maybe, but the, the sort of the spirituality of what it means to engage with people and communities around an agenda of transformation. You know, the reality of it, 
where it's really taking place there in the field, you have to feel the vibration of what's going on, really see how people are interacting with one another and, and feel that energy to really understand it at a truly deep level what the work is actually all about and the kinds of things that um, make it go better and the kinds of things that really constrain it and get in the way. Um, you know, the choice that I made was due largely also because on the other hand, um, and this is a reflection also on the, the organizational paradigms that we put into place to support scale, you know, this organization that had a kind of central, you know, there was a central top management and I was part of it and getting the, you know, and I use the word machinery because it kind of is machinery or has been, and that's a, we could reconceptualize that perhaps to much better effect, but getting the organizational operations to run well so that people who do their work well in the field can do their work well in the field, that was a huge preoccupation of mine. Um, and it was necessary work because if I didn't do it, no one else you know, responsible for or speaking for the group in the field was really in a great position to be able to do that. So it was sort of straddling a lot of worlds. It was very difficult that, you know, very difficult. Yeah. I mean, to use another bad metaphor, it's really where the rubber was meeting the road, wasn't it? Um, it, it was. And, and that's the thing about transformation. The rubber is hitting the road at every contact point between individuals who are involved in the work. So the transformation is as much about the annoying bureaucratic meeting about your HR policies as it is about the contact that you have with a farmer out in the field around a new set of ideas about how to manage her pests, you know, something like that. It's, it's got to work at all of the levels if it's going to have integrity and really flow well. It's really got kind of a fractal, a fractal quality to it, doesn't it? It, it? it does when it's working well. And of course, it always has a fractalian quality because, yes, you know, it's the, the truth is always there in full in every interaction, even if it's an interaction that's not going well or whatever. But yeah, you know, you, ideally you want the same set of guiding principles, not you know, rules is a funny word, principles or values to be there, like guiding the fractal pattern every single place. And that's when you have you know, deep alignment. And I think that's one of the things that we struggled with at Rainforest Alliance. And I think all larger organizations struggle with is that sense of moving as one, even when you're dispersed, especially when you're dispersed across levels, across places, across functions, you know, staying aligned and staying moving as one. It's, it's one of the very, very hardest things to achieve uh, in collective flow. And, you know, what is scale if not a sense of collective flow emanating out further and wider and touching more people and more land? Yeah, it's interesting that, that um, I mean, this whole concept of dispersed alignment, you know, that's, to me, that is ab absolutely central to not just the concept of, of scaling up, but, you know, the, it's the mechanism in many ways of, of you know, how do we reach that kind of meaningful scale? And the other word you used a couple of times that I think is, is very pertinent to this particular conversation is transformation. Because for me, transformation, there's an implication in the use of that word, which also touches on scale because we can change, but it's really when we transform systems and we transform ourselves even, that we can appreciate the magnitude of that sort of change. It implies something much broader, something deeper at the same time. And I think you know, with a, a level of resonance to it and an ability to persist longer. Um, so I, I, let's, let's dig into those concepts um, for a few minutes here. If we're talking about uh, what we really need um, in terms of uh, planetary system recovery, um, particularly with respect to what regenerative uh, agriculture, regenerative systems can deliver, things like carbon cycles, things like climate cycles, uh, water cycles, watershed uh, functioning, 
food security, this sort of thing. We really are um, talking about the need to transform not just the system itself, but the way in which we interact with that. In order to do that in a way which is both um, focused and timely, because we are running out of time, um, there is this need to somehow balance out the alignment between the individual efforts so that they're you know, they're resonating, they're, they're kind of singing to the same tune. And at the same time, have a multi-point strategy so that we're touching as many places as possible, ideally in a way which builds, uh, which builds in terms of numbers, but also intensity and frequency, et cetera. So that'd be, I think that would be interesting to dig into that. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts? Yeah, no, there's a, there's a lot there. You know, I, so I think lining up together. So, like, I, I am a big sports fan. I'm a big sports fan. And I am always blown away by the fact that the teams that totally buy into the team concept and – they don't shed the individuals in the team. They don't shed their egos so much as put, put them on a platter as an offering. All of those things that we have and are capable of doing, we put in service of the team concept that we're buying into and developing together. Um, and then we're here not so much to win the game, but we're here for each other. And we're here to embody and honor the team concept through our very, very best of efforts. Those are the teams that win championships. And if they don't win the championship, they, they have an incredible time together and amazing things happen. For sure. The thing is worth it. It's always worth it. And so, you know, applying that way of thinking and that sort of a metaphor to life together, especially in both individual life, so our individual lives in the collective, and then especially organizations. Organizations that are out there thinking about and working on many of the same kinds of things. You know, if you, if you Google things like sustainable agriculture, sustainable supply chains, regenerative agriculture, like all of that, you're going to find, you know, a huge and ever-growing number of organizations who are doing stuff and, and all of them doing awesome, very high quality work. Um, but apropos of, not but, and apropos of your, of your sort of, one of your suggestions or points, are we focusing together? How much are we focusing together on sets of problems that we really all can agree are the most urgent, the places that are most important, where in a world where there is absolute abundance and yet some scarcity of deploy, immediately deployable resources so that we can get our act together and work together, collective action, around a collective action agenda. It's clearly laid out where the capabilities of our different organizations are put into the service of these things and are backstopped by an alignment among those who fund this kind of work, who themselves have gotten together along with implementing organizations to kind of share that same diagnosis. That, in my view, and we've talked a bit about this, you know, that, in my view, if you, if you can unlock the capability of organizations and funders, including, to do that, then um, I think you can see the possibility of transformation taking place um, in a much faster way. Because what it, in and of itself would be an expression of and an achievement of a kind of a transformation. Because organizations like Rainforest Alliance and others, notwithstanding the true fidelity to a bigger mission, at the end of the day, have their own employees to employ and to maintain in gainful employment. There is a sense in which, you know, the real politic of organizational life does devolve at some level to keeping the beast fed. 
And that is a massive preoccupation, um, overtly and less so, for everybody in an organization. And that whenever we are feeling the fear of scarcity, right, <laughs> you know, our reptilian brain gets triggered, we go into fight or flight mode, and all of the higher consciousness, the parts of our brain that are needed in order to stimulate ego-free collaboration, they shut down. Right. So, um, Absolutely. Absolutely. so I'm just, I'm, I'm riffing a little bit here. I've got some other things I could share, but just, you know, over to you. Let, let's keep riffing on this. No, but that's, that's quite interesting. It's something I looked at, I think, uh, you know, very hard and a number of times when I was doing a lot of intensive work with the NGO community back in the, the late eighties and nineties and the early knots, um, was, this whole issue of mission drift and how organizations would set themselves up to achieve specific goals, specific agenda, this kind of thing, very, very quickly morph into a mission of keeping themselves fed. And that's when the opportunistic funding starts to kick in. And that's when they start drifting to whatever they think is to keep them, you know, basically their, their financial and dramatic hop amongst agenda. And at the time, I was really, really frustrated because I was trying to get a roadshow put together to go around to the funding, the charitable foundations and the funding community in the United States and say, look, actually the way you, uh, you structure your application and awards process is driving the NGO community in the opposite direction from which you intend. Because you want results and you want to see impact on your chosen domain of uh, social or environmental issues. And what you're continually doing is creating an atmosphere of competitiveness and secrecy. Because in order to be awarded, they have to demonstrate that their, that their process and their concept is best according to some set of standards, unique. And that means they cannot share what they're doing with their colleagues. So you're, you're preventing the coming together of the very sector you say you're out there to support. And the big disappointment at the time was there was absolutely no interest in having those conversations at that level. Um, I don't think things have changed dramatically since then, although, you know, there's some promising development. Um, but, but absolutely, this, this whole topic area of, um, you know, keeping yourself going. I think we were one of the few nonprofits at the time which had set itself up with the intention of shutting itself down. Because at the time we were doing our work with rights into the mainstream environmental agenda and we knew that if we were successful we would be redundant and we would cheer that day um but i, I we were <laughs> we were in such a minority uh with 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 that way of thinking um and so you know we still have an issue there we still have definitely an issue around uh, mission drift and around how do we get a you know, the entire sector and multi-sector to really collaborate much more effectively. Um, you know, thank God open source and open platforms for information and, and knowledge sharing and this sort of thing have made a significant progress. Um, but like I said before, the clock is ticking. Many of us are aware of, of time really, you know, really running out quickly to make this transformation in order to turn things around as best as possible and in some kind of meaningful time frame. Um, and I think that, you know, the regenerative movement in general is a microcosm of that. I mean, it's, it, to be successful, it needs to become more of a macro, but at the, at the moment, it's still a microcosm in that we need cross-sectoral 
collaboration as well as you know collaboration within sectors. We need the funders in there. We need the finance, uh, you know, the kind of city level, regional kind of finance, so the, the sort of thing that comes down through setting up green bonds, for instance. We need the farmers. We need the we need the consumers of the produce to continue to put pressure but also give support to the farmers. We need the entrepreneurs who don't think of themselves as farmers to engage their, their outside-the-box thinking in answering some of these, these issues around productivity and in, in distribution of food and ways to monitor uh, meaningful soil improvement, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I, th I think, you know, there are a lot of very promising seeds that are already out of the ground and sprouting up. I'll give you some examples. You know, the, 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 for just generally, the, the, there is a growing practice that is now maturing quite nicely in the catalyzing of multi-stakeholder movements around, you know, issue areas slash commodities, et cetera. So, you know, forums like the T2030 Forum, um, the Protein Challenge here in the U.S., Actually, that's a global one. There are a lot of really interesting um, gangs of increasingly unusual suspects. They're not necessarily, they, they all can be, let's say, properly critiqued for some of the limitations in the breadth of participation among those who need to be on the, on the bus. Not everybody's on the ride for these things. Sometimes you don't have producers on there at all. Um, sometimes the naysaying activists don't get a seat, whatever. But it's getting a lot better. And there are organizations like Forum for the Future who are like basically building out, like their job in life is to build out the practice of catalyzing collective um, action, collective theories of change for systemic change around broad areas of sustainability. So I'd say that, you know, those guys, Forum for the Future is amazing. Um, organization that's funded by the Nova Foundation called um, uh, the Mission Strategy Center. They're like doing fantastic stuff. Funders like Novo actually are really interesting. You know, they have, as of now fall 2017, um, a Radical Hope um, $20 million fund challenge. And that's basically all about organizations coming together to collaborate in new ways to address, you know, fundamental issues related to social justice and sustainability. So this is a little broader than regenerative agriculture, although they are there are big funders in regenerative agriculture, Overbrook Foundation, um, other kinds of funder collaboratives like uh, the Global Alliance for the Future of Food. I mentioned them to you uh, a couple of weeks ago. There are increasingly now people who are, and, and the right kinds of people who are recognizing that need to sort of shed organizational ego and sort of put themselves, surrender to a process that is really all about coming to collective prioritization, at least ultimately to collective prioritization and action, but starting a little bit upstream of that with thinking and reflecting on the paradigm and the mindset that is guiding you know, the current system, um, however you define the system that needs to be addressed or focused on and then walking step-by-step step down the path as we collectively diagnose the system. So I think there are really some seeds of hope and, and you know, there are some awesome initiatives that have gotten spawned from that kind of work. Um, none of them are perfect, but, you know, I guess they're perfect in their imperfections um, and their intentions are very pure. I just want to make one, one little... Um, comment on the riff that you shared too about um, the pressures to feed the beast and you know one of the other things that that dynamic puts pressure on is for organizations to fly the flag of unmitigated success um, here are my KPIs here's my reach here's the you know touting the effectiveness of the model 
And like, we're doing stuff that no one's done before. We're trying, you know, scaling, transforming at large scale, you know, agricultural practices or whatever it is, or the behavior of supply chains and their modalities. Yeah, this is new stuff. Intentional system transformation is kind of new. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And, and so like, we're going to fuck up a lot, you know? And like, like if you think about your own personal life, your professional life, it's like, it's not the mistake because everyone makes them all the time. It's the response. It's what you do with the mistake, the insights you gain, because usually actually, it's actually mistakes are really easy to learn from if you're just very thoughtful and you go free about it. If you, which of course that means you have to do the hard work to be ego free and, you know, kill your sacred cows. It's hard to learn from success. You're more easily deluded by success, I think, than failure because at least failure is a referendum on lots of things that you thought were true. Right. But it doesn't, like work, that. it doesn't work out when it works out. You can still preserve your illusion because you could be successful out of just a whole set of other dynamics, including dumbass luck that have nothing to do with your brilliant theory of change. You know, it could just be the right thing for the right moment and moment passes. So, you know, we, we are then also incentivized not to be brutally honest about where things aren't working and why. Why? You know, I've always wanted to put together a conference like on what's working, what's not, and why, where folks just sort of drop the need for the beautiful PowerPoint and just shared the epic fail, the epic fail. It's like, what? It, like you said, we don't have time to fuck around. And yeah. so we're holding on to these ideas about what works when they probably don't, we'll talk about an impediment to scale. Yeah, I mean, and there's so much in that too, you know, there's like uh, needing to cling to your idea of your success because that's an extension of ego. Exactly. Right? There's the fear of going into the unknown because of the value you've already put on the success. <laughs> so what if I lose that? Where will um, I? Yeah, and it is the need, the need to feel like you know. There's a lot of value, a lot of treasure that I'm packing that box of failure. As you say, the referendum. How did you say that again? Failure is a referendum on... I don't know. Do you remember? <laughs> I don't know. It was beautiful. It was actually beautiful. <laughs> so sticking, with, sticking with, the, with the need to scale and sticking with the, you know, not having time to mess around looking at regenerative as even, even in its narrower sense, even in its narrower sense, which is already broad, we're you know, not going into the, the, you know, the broader sense of regenerative society, for instance, or, you know, needing to create more regenerative culture, but looking in the narrower sense of the way in which we treat respect, conserve, repair, and steward land. That's huge enough. Um, as, as, as a topic of conversation, in your sense, you know, from, from your look at the radar and the landscape, what do you think the immediate, the next immediate challenges are? Where, do you, where would you like to see this moving over the next three to five years as, as um, I, I don't even know what the word is to encompass that. It's more than a movement, but movement and movement kind of implies something that's overly political and less kind of concrete, but as, as, a, yeah, as, as a movement, then it's, you know, for lack of a better word, where do you think we need to take things? Yeah. So great, great question. My own view about that. So I think what would be utterly invaluable and what we don't have enough of now and it's getting chipped away at in a very nice way but it's not ready yet for prime time which is unfortunate really credible very strongly designed um, field-based scientific study scientific economic study 
of ultimately the bottom line net income impact for producers of the adoption of replicable common sense practices, um, especially around managing the soil as a living ecosystem. Um, we know from the work of folks like Elaine Ingham and others um, in smaller kinds of studies, right, that the yield and the net income benefits for producers of reestablishing the soil food web and doing so in a targeted way that is aligned to the producer's objectives. That combined with um, very simple kinds of crop rotation and intercropping practices can have very transformative impacts on soil ecosystems, above ground biodiversity, um, productivity and yield, and ultimately farmer net income. That's the kind of stuff that we need to see at broader acre scale, like larger, larger kind of farm acreage with kind of conventional landscapes, conventional producer landscapes. We need to see that studied in an ironclad way. Um, because for, for this kind of work to begin really propagating and infiltrating conventional agriculture, it's got to be charts and graphs and data. You've got to see charts and graphs and data, and it's got to be compelling, and it's got to be real. It also has to be based on, let's say, a, a systematic enough paradigm for how to manage one's land that it can be the basis of um, a really simple and effective training and technical assistance program. So, you know, the folks at Iowa State, for example, you know, uh, the Leopold Institute, they're doing amazing, amazing work with just this kind of thing. Like even small organizations like the White Rock Conservancy, which is also in Iowa, they're an awesome little organization. And they're just doing little things like prairie strips, small bits of holistic grazing, but they're studying it and studying it very well and getting great data. And they're right in the middle of the American heartland. You know, to me, that's the kind of thing that can really unlock um, scale in the sense of propagating into propagating regenerative practices that can meaningfully turn around the ecological disaster and atrocity that is happening with our soil. You know, that's the that's got to be the focus area in my own view. It's got to be about the soil. And the good news is it's actually not all that hard. The data. You need the data. Practices, outcomes, outputs, nicely done with studies, with counterfactual and conventional landscapes right in there in the studies. That's what's needed, my opinion. I, that's, I agree with that. Um, I think there's nothing, nothing as persuasive for people with open minds as, as you know, substantive data to back basically to reinforce their, their more intuitive sense of, of what's right. You know, what works, what's right, can I demonstrate it? You know, can I, can I show some sort of facts and figures that back up what I believe my experience has already proven to me? Yes. Um, you know, through my eyes, through my experience, maybe on my piece of land. What would you say to people... Um, who might come back and say, well, well, look, you know, then there's no point in, in trying to actually ramp things up until we have data. Um, and we need another three to five years of study before we can say conclusively, this is a good way to go. Because you know, they're out there. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know what to say. You know, my, I, I don't really have an agenda to change people's minds necessarily. Um, you know, keep doing what you're doing. That's okay. There are plenty of people. We already are at critical mass. There are a lot of people doing this work right now. A lot. There are a lot of people who are on their own, trusting their eye. So like a great example of that and just the more natural and, and just I don't lie kind of thing. If you see the work of the Savory Institute, right? And folks like that, who are doing regenerative grazing, right? And holistic grazing. And you know, some of that maybe, some of the claims are a little bit out ahead of the science. And so they have to be a little bit careful of that, I do believe. But 
you know, your eye is always going to tell you the truth, I think, when it comes to the land and stewards of the land have an incredible eye for what's happening on their land. And if you see the testimonials, I mean, if, see the films of Peter Bick. Do you know Peter? He's also yeah, yeah. yeah, we're, we're going to be talking with him soon. Oh, good. Say hi. He's a, he's a buddy. And, you know, Peter, you know, the, the stories that he's documenting about these, like, incredible ranchers, right, who somehow or another, usually it was because they were at the end of their rope, right? I don't lie. I, you know, I am, I am about to go into foreclosure and my cows are not healthy and I'm not making any money, like I'm done, right? So there is an element in a paradigm change usually comes most readily when there's a crisis, you know, because the crisis is the referendum on all of your sacred truths, right? Like, oh, none of this makes any sense and you have to go back to the paradigm like all of it and you become more receptive because it's it's just staring you in the face and so this, these are beautiful stories of ranchers who just tried out holistic grazing and they're like oh my gosh look at my animals they're happy and healthy look at my land it's regenerating it's incredible and all of a sudden i'm starting to make more money and they have little time on their hands so they can diversify their business and start doing value adding and they become more entrepreneurial and et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's captured so beautifully in these, in these films of his, like uh, the 10,000 beating hearts, um, that sort of thing. So, you know, films like that, the, the peer to peer networks that are organically forming around um, nodes and, and by a node, I mean, an awesome farmer, an awesome rancher who is respected in the community. And they see, wait a second, she is doing amazing. He is doing, he's changed up and like, what? And of course, like not everyone's going to pay attention to that or be influenced, but that has a remarkable organic and natural influence as we know. And that is one of the reasons why the stuff is propagating on its, on its own steam. And behind it in association with that and riding along with it, um, in fact, there are some studies that are, so this beautiful, um, and Peter will probably talk about it, but this incredible coalition of traditional land grant universities, research organizations, and some, you know, companies really, you know, big companies like McDonald's, you know, McDonald's, you'd be surprised at the quality of the work that they're doing around beef. They're very interested in all of this. You know, they've all come together to do a really outstanding system science study of the impacts of holistic grazing practices, regenerative grazing practices. So, but that the ability for that to happen only took place because people were atten paying attention to their eye and the natural propagation of these practices was already taking place. We're going to take a break now. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Designers of Paradise is made possible in part by Mind & Media. Over the last quarter century, the writers, producers, storytellers, and media specialists at Mind & Media have spearheaded a multitude of engaging and complex communication campaigns. Mind & Media is a proud supporter of the work being done by the wonderful and passionate people of Rasa who are engaged in the creation of a regenerative future for generations to come. Find out more about Mind & Media at mindandmedia.com. That's M-I-N-D-A-N-D-M-E-D-I-A dot com. And now, back to Designers of Paradise and host Eric Van Lennon. Welcome back to Designers of Paradise. We're chatting with Joshua Tosteson from Brooklyn, New York. Yeah. That brings up another, I think, really interesting topic, which is kind of central to the series that we're building. And that is the power of visibility through the power of stories. Because, you know, people like Peter Bick and, um, and, and so many others kiss the ground. Um, uh, you know, getting the stories out there so that more people in the general public understand that there is a movement afoot that there is positivity in the landscape. And this is, uh, you know, what I, what I talk about frequently is evidence-based hope. It's, you know, hope is one thing when it's just attached to kind of blind faith. It's something much more um, 
reasonable and powerful and very necessary when we can tie it into real evidence. You know, what are the grounds for being more hopeful of our future and our, and our possibilities for transformation? And so this, you know, this ability to tell stories about these individual farms, going back to this kind of topic of, of some minutes ago when we were talking about dispersed alignment through the system or dispersed alignment of, of individual efforts uh, that actually make up a much larger composite picture. It, it's so incredibly important. Um, what are your thoughts on that and, and the kind of the role of storytelling? In this? <laughs> oh my gosh. So I think this is where the power of brands and marketing becomes so fascinating. And the, and, and the connection then between the case for the reasons why a new paradigm of land management is salient for producers. You know, this transformation is a collective transformation that must include everyone and all of us, including those of us in our guise and adornments as consumers, right? And brands live to speak to us as consumers. And speaking to us as consumers is to speak to us in our aspirations and our fears, right? When they speak to us as consumers, they're talking to things that we want to be. They're talking to our ideal self, right? They're talking to the things that we're afraid of and want to protect ourselves against. So there are all these buttons they push to try to get us to align with them, right? Because their brand story, their brand value, their brand identity is supposed to be like that reflection or embodiment of those things that we hope for and wish for. Um, and indeed in cases the, the safe harbor we wanna jump to um, to get away from our fears. And so brands, um, of course now, this movement of sustainable brands and so forth, right, is all about a movement. It's speaking to, and in a con you know, it's in a conversation with this shift in consciousness that's taking place Naturally, it's just the evolution that's taking place. And brands love great stories. They love great stories. One of the things that Rainforest Alliance is a really multifaceted organization, um, did I think really well, and we focused a lot on it, was spending time and just having this kind of conversation, just exactly this kind of conversation with you know, a two hectare small farmer in Sulawesi, Indonesia, and another one in the Ivory Coast, another lady who is farming in Costa Rica, you know, that's what we would spend time doing. And one of the reasons why the brands really enjoyed working with us because we have these trusting relationships and then could draw out from people the incredible stories of the hard stuff that they're doing beauty of the journey that they're taking you know stories you know i see i see myself in you i see myself in you we that is what the story is we it is a it's a vehicle for elevating into the essential oneness that we all are so it's obviously so critical and that's where i do believe brands have an amazing role to play because they have the capacity and the money um, to spread stories all over the place. And they are actually already doing this. Many of them are already doing this. I, I think I have great, great hope um, for that. And I have great respect for brands that do that. One could see it as a shameless kind of a marketing tactic. And, and maybe I suppose at one level that is, but like, I think that's, that's maybe a little bit jaded, a little bit jaded. We don't have room to be too jaded. We don't need to be naive. We're too old for naivete now, but we're too bold for negativity. We can't, we can't get negative. Yeah, and it's, it, it kind of brings to mind that expression of using the right tool for the job, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, branding is based uh, you know, on deep understanding of psychology. That's right. And so, of course, motivating us to align our spending with our values and our aspirations, you know, that's, that's their job. 
and you know having having the those values and aspirations be connected to regen ultimately regenerative practices on the land which you know that's that's a great thing let's go spend money on that right and let's diet on that let's spend our attention on that like everything is a diet we eat food that's a diet the media we consume that's diet you know we absolutely need to consume a different diet if our mindset is if, if a shift in mindset is to take root and grow strong you know it's just going to get blown away and buttressed buffeted by um you know wind of negativity if you consume negative diet all the time it's true. And ultimately, it's about, as you say, I see myself in you. Or I can see myself in this. So hum. Yeah. I am that. So hum. Um, we're coming up on the end of our, our uh, interview time. Is, is there something you'd like to leave people with as, as a, a thought? Or something we haven't touched on, you're kind of burning to... to take a look at before we go? I guess I'd just say that, you know, systemic change of any kind, I, you know, the, the work of Danella Meadows on this is like my playbook. And she has this beautiful, beautiful little paper, leverage points to intervene in a system. So it's all, what, do you know it? Yeah. Very well, yeah. yeah. It's just a, it's a classic, right? And, and the, 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 highest point of leverage. There are all these things you can tinkle with and mess with, and there are increasingly powerful ways to change systems. The, the most powerful, the point of highest leverage is the, the paradigm, the mindset out of which the system arises. And then she made a little addendum to the paper, a little correction, said actually, and on top of that, is the capacity to shift paradigms and mindsets. And so, Ultimately, scale is really about unlocking the capacity of all of us to shift our mindsets. And that capacity has so much to do with the way we conduct ourselves in the little things of day-to-day -day life. Because all of this stuff is grand and flowery, but it's really about, you know, how you wake up, how you deal with the people that you love in your life, how you care for the stuff that is right around you in your life, right here, not over there, over there too, but bringing over there into right here and right now. So I think, you know, for me, it, it just all rests on this moment, right now, this place, right here. That's a good point to end it. Um, I want to thank you for yet one more absolutely inspiring and energizing conversation. Uh, my guest today is Josh Tosteson, based in Brooklyn, New York. Um, and as you can tell by the interview, a long, long time thinker and doer across a very broad spectrum of uh, ecological and social change activity. Thanks again. Thanks, Eric. Thank you for listening to Designers of Paradise. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Join me next week as we bring you another eye-opening interview with the people who are revolutionizing the way we produce our food. Indeed, the people on the front lines of Designing Paradise. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. To learn more, go to www.rasa.ag. That's www.rasa.ag. R-A-S-A dot A-G. If you have any ideas you'd like to suggest, such as folks we should be talking to or a specific topic we should cover, hit me up with your ideas on Twitter at Greenheart. That's G-R-E-E-N underscore H-E-A-R-T, Greenheart. We'll see you next week.